Good morning, my name is Scott Holly. I'm one of the elders here at Green Tree. And I have the privilege of bringing today's message. One of the things that's true about getting older is that there's a lot of baggage that comes with that. You can't lift heavy objects that hurt your back, your eyesight dims, your knees go bad, your hair turns gray. But there's one really good thing that's about getting older that makes life much easier, and that is that with age comes clarity. And for me, that takes a lot of forms, but one way it takes, it takes a, a very concrete form is that I've realized I'm not good at a lot of things. When I was young, I had a lot of fantasies of things I would do. I grew up in the 50s and 60s when the space age was really at full peak, and I thought, well, I'm going to be an astronaut. But I, I got C's in chemistry and physics, so that was, there was no chance. I thought I'm going to play for the Cardinals, and one look at my Little League career would tell you that was a complete fantasy. I thought I might write a Pulitzer Prize novel. That didn't ever happen. I realized pretty quickly that I'm a man who has no skills whatsoever. (laughs) When Tom talks about the Building and Grounds Committee and volunteering for that, I am the last person you want on the Building and Grounds Committee. The building would collapse if you would give me any responsibility to do anything at all. I have no handyman skills whatsoever. I have no artistic skills whatsoever. I can't paint. I can't draw. I can't act. I can't sculpt, I can't sing, I can't do anything like that. I don't have a green thumb, I can't speak a foreign language, I can't, I can't play a musical instrument, I'm, I'm a terrible athlete. All those things are true. I don't know why my wife stays married to me. I, except I guess I'm good at admitting my faults, that's the only thing. But I am good at one thing. And I've been good at it since literally, almost literally the moment I was born. When I came out of my mother's womb, the doctor held me up, and the first thing I did after taking my first breath was what? I began to cry. I began to complain. And I'm really, really good at complaining. Now, I don't think most people would know that about me, but I keep my complaints inside. I'm really big at self-pity and internal whining. And I think a lot of people are. I mean, I think, I think that's, that we all are, some, some of us are closet whiners and some of us are flat out whiners and we make no secret of it. And that says something about our character, doesn't it? I don't care who we are. I don't care what we do. We found a way to feel sorry for ourselves, to complain about things. There's a line by a guy named Thomas Fuller who says, we're born crying, we live complaining, and we die disappointed. Now, maybe that's overly cynical, but I think we can all relate to it because we we complain about our marriage or the fact we're not married. We complain about our kids, the fact we don't have kids. We complain about our bank account, our job, our boss, the weather, the Cardinals bullpen, right? We complain about all kinds of things, some very trivial, some very serious. But it's human nature to complain. Even people who have it all complain. Tom quoted John D. Rockefeller a few months ago, and I, I want to r- repeat that because I think it says it all. John D. Rockefeller, the richest man in the world, was asked by a reporter, well, when are you going to be satisfied? When are you going to have enough money? And his response was, when I have one dollar more. That's a, that's a heart that's geared towards self-pity. Remarkably so. Cynthia Heimel was a reporter for The Village Voice. She covered celebrities in the 80s and throughout the 90s. And when she quit that job, she wrote one final essay. It was kind of like her chance to vent about celebrity culture. I want to read one, one thing she said about celebrities. Because, again, if we think they have it all. But this is what she said about celebrities. I pity celebrities. 
They were once perfectly pleasant human beings, but now their wrath is awful. More than any of us, they wanted fame. They worked, they pushed. The morning after each of them became famous, they wanted to take an overdose. Because that giant thing they were striving for, that fame thing, that was going to make everything okay, that was going to make their lives bearable, was going to provide them with personal fulfillment and happiness had happened. And nothing changed. They were still them. The disillusionment turned them howling and insufferable. I think when God wants to play a really rotten practical joke on you, he grants you your deepest wish. Even people who have it all find a, find a way to complain. And we know that's true, right? If we lost 40 pounds or won an Oscar, we won the lottery, we landed a dream job, we married the man or woman of our dreams, it doesn't matter what it is. Whatever our, our dream is, we know we'd still find something to complain about. I'll never forget the day after the Cardinals won the 2006 World Series. I was with two of my friends. All three of us are big baseball fans, and we were celebrating the fact that this improbable 83-win team had won the World Series. And in the midst of our celebration, one of the guys says, wait a minute, wait a minute. I'm really worried about our bullpen for next year. (laughs) He couldn't even give give it 12 hours of celebration before he turned it into something to worry about. That's human nature. Now, that's especially problematic for Christians because we're supposed to trust God. We're supposed to believe that he has our lives in his hands, that he's a sovereign God who knows the affairs of not only mankind but of us personally. But somehow, we lose sight of that. So that's the issue we want to look at today. And we want to look at it through a most unlikely biblical heroine, Rahab. We're starting a seven-week summer series on women of the Bible. Rahab is the first of the women we're going to look at. Now, again, she's a very, very unlikely biblical heroine. She was a pagan prostitute from Jericho. And if anybody, if ever anyone was an unlikely source of God's sovereign love, it would be this woman. And yet, she's celebrated in the Old Testament and the New because she got one big thing right. In the face of daunting circumstances, She placed her faith in God, and she did so because she had a proper sense of awe in God. The title of this sermon is The Curse of Awelessness. And it's titled that way because I think the root cause of our life of complaint and our self-pity is that we've lost sense of the proper reverence with which we should hold God. We've lost our sense of awe about God. And without that, it's very easy for us to make our lives all about us. But when we see God as he really is, when we see him with a proper sense of awe and reverence, then suddenly we take our eyes off our our circumstances and see him, and it changes everything. So, today's sermon in a sentence is this. Those Those who lose sight of the sense of awe to be found in God's immense love for us and his power demonstrated on our behalf run the risk of losing the joy that life in Christ should bring. Let's open in prayer. We'll jump into this. Father, we thank you that you're a God who shows his hand to us constantly. But somehow we manage not to see it. Somehow we remain blind to the truth of who you are. And we pray, Lord, that you would give us the eyes to see who you are, your love for us, and how that makes all the difference. And we ask these things in Christ's holy name. Amen. I used to think 
that if I could simply see one of God's miracles firsthand, if I could actually witness a miracle, if I could see God's presence, then I would never doubt, I would never waver in my faith, and arguably my life of complaining would be over because I'd say, well, God is in control. I used to think that. But when you look at Scripture and you realize there are plenty of people in Scripture who saw God's unmistakable power and they didn't get it. And that quickly disabused me of that notion that, that if I saw a miracle, I'd believe. I want to give you one example. I could pick many from the Old or the New Testament, but I want to pick what I, what I think is the best example, and that would be the nation of Israel at the time of the Exodus. Now, if ever there were people who were privileged to be in the presence of God, they were the ones. Think about it. They're in slavery in Egypt. They complain to God. God sends Moses, who goes to Pharaoh and says, let these people free from bondage. Pharaoh refuses, and God then sends a series of ten plagues upon the Egyptian people. Gnats and flies and boils and darkness. And it all culminates, of course, in the Passover, when the angel of death comes, comes into Egypt, and who kill, he kills the firstborn of every family in all of Egypt. It's a terrible tragedy, and of course, it, caught, it breaks the heart of the Egyptian people. Pharaoh finally says to the Israelites, okay, go. I'm done with you. Get out of here. And not only does he say that, he says, here, take this gold, take this silver, take this livestock. Go. Get out of here. They're not, they're not only free, now they're rich. So they leave. They come to the Red Sea. You know the story. Pharaoh has changed his mind. They're trapped. They don't know what to do. God parts the waters of the Red Sea. The Israelites pass through. They're now safe. Here comes Pharaoh's army. They enter into the Red Sea, the bottom of the Red Sea. The waves crash. They drown. Then they're safe. But they don't have anything to eat. So God sends manna and he sends quail and they have food to eat. And not only that, but he manifests himself visibly every single day. He appears to them at night in a pillar of fire and a day in a, in a cloud. And so that if you wondered if God was there, all you had to do was raise your, raise your eyes, open your eyes and say, look, there he is. There he is every day. He's freed you from slavery. He's, he's freed you from the Egyptian army. He's given you food to eat. His presence is there, and there are other miracles as well. We don't have time to relate. I mean, it's every day, and yet they don't get it. And, and they complain again and again and again. I want to look at one example. One of the most dramatic examples, one of the most tragic examples, and that is when they finally come to the promised land. Now, Abraham, hundreds of years before, God said to Abraham, I will, I will give you a land that will be yours. So this has been, they've been waiting for this for centuries, and now it's come to pass. They've come, to the, they've come to the border of the land of Canaan, the promised land. And Moses, Moses sends 12 spies into the land. They come back and make the report. Two of them, Caleb and Joshua, give a favorable report. But two of them, excuse me, 10 of them, give a very different report. So we want to look now at that story in Numbers 13, starting in verse 30. We're going to read through Numbers 14, uh, 1 through 4. This is the story. This is a story of the report of the spies. So here, here it is. Caleb silenced the people before Moses and said, let us go up at once and possess it, possess the land. For we are able to overcome it. But the men that went up said, with him said, we are not able to go up against the people because they are stronger than we. They gave the children of Israel a bad report of the land which they had spied out, saying, this land through which we have gone as spies is a land that devours its inhabitants and all the people whom we saw in it are men of great stature. 
And there we saw the giants, the sons of Anak, which, came, which come from the giants. And in our eyes, we were like grasshoppers, and so we were in their eyes. And the whole assembly lifted up their voices and cried, and the people wept that night. All the children of Israel grumbled against Moses and against Aaron, and the whole assembly said to them, Oh, that we had died in the land of Egypt, or that we had died in this wilderness. And why has the Lord brought us to this land to fall by the sword, that our wives and our children should become prey? Is it not better for us to return to Egypt? And they said one to another, Let us select a leader and let us return to Egypt. This is ingrate 101, isn't it? I mean, look at this. The spies say, Oh, no, these people are like giants. It's too much for us. Now, didn't you just see what God did in Egypt? Didn't you just see that? And then, and then their, their cowardice, their fear, their lack of faith manifests itself in the people. The people say, and think about how incredible this is. We would rather go back to Egypt and be enslaved again than trust God to give us what he promised and what he's amply demonstrated as a power to give us. We still don't believe. Incredible. Despite all that God has done for them, despite all the promises he's made to them and the demonstration of his power, they don't believe. It's, it's like Cynthia Heimel put her finger right on it. God has granted, granted them their deepest wish, freedom, and they regard it as a rotten practical joke. They want no part of it. This is human nature, right? This is us. This is the way we are. Ungrateful, blind, failing to trust, complaining. And the consequences for the the Israelites are terrible because what God says to them, because of your failure to believe me, I'm going to cause you to to delay your entry into the promised land for 40 years. You're going to have to wander around in the wilderness for 40 years until this unbelieving generation dies off. And only Caleb and Joshua will be allowed to enter the promised land. Disbelief has consequences for them and does it have consequences for us? I think it does. Now, all this is a preamble that gets us to Rahab. Forty years have gone by. The godless, disbelieving generation has died off. Joshua is now the leader of the people. They're on the brink of entry into the promised land. They've already defeated two kings, the kings of the Amorites, east of the Jordan. They've crossed the Jordan in a miraculous way, which, again, we don't have time to talk about. And now they're on the brink of approaching the city of Jericho, which is the first city they'll have to conquer if they're going to take over the land of Canaan. So Joshua sends two spies this time into Jericho to scout out that town to see what they need to see. And we'll tell, and so we'll see that story now. So this is from Joshua 2, starting in the first, in the first verse of Joshua 2. Then Joshua, son of Nun, secretly sent two spies from Shittim. Go look over the land, he said, especially Jericho. So they went and entered the house of a prostitute named Rahab and stayed there. Now, why would they go there? Well, she's a prostitute, right? Strange men come and go all the time. She's a likely person to go to for that reason. King of Jericho was told, look, some of the Israelites have come here tonight to spy out the land. So the king of Jericho sent this message to Rahab. Bring out the men who came to you. And entered your house because they have come to spy out the whole land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. She said, yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they'd come from. At dusk, when it was time to close the city gate, they left. I don't know which way they went. Go after them quickly. You may catch up with them. But she had taken them up on the roof and hidden them under the stalks of flax she laid out on the roof. So the men set out in pursuit of the spies on the road that leads to the fords of the Jordan. And as soon as the pursuers had gone out, the gate was shut. 
Now, let's, let's stop reading and let's talk about this a little bit. These two men knock on, on, on Rahab's door. And she has a choice to make, right? Her choice is this. She can basically turn them into the king of Jordan. Excuse me, king of Jericho. And the king will probably give her some kind of reward. He'll give her, I'll make it up. He's going to give her $5,000. $5,000 is a nice sum. But $5,000 will be gone in a short period of time, right? And it won't substantially change her life. Or she can make a different choice. She can choose to hide the spies, which, of course, is the choice she makes. Now, this woman is a social outcast. This is a woman who walks down the streets of Jericho, and people point, point their fingers at her. They, they avoid making eye contact with her. Men come to her day and night, knock on her door, treat her as a piece of meat, dehumanize her, humiliate her. This is her life. She has a lot to complain about, a lot more than most of us have to complain about. But she's got a key choice to make, and she makes the choice, obviously, to hide the spies. And making that choice makes all the difference, because as the story unfolds, when the city of Jericho actually falls, she's rescued, and her family is rescued. Her brothers and sisters, her mother and father, they're all rescued by the Israelites, and she is taken into their family. She becomes a part of their nation. And in the New Testament, we read about Rahab in the book of Matthew, in the book of Hebrews, and in the book of James three times. The writers of those books single her out as a woman of great faith and as an example to follow. Follow the life of a pagan prostitute is what they're saying because she made the critical choice to obey. Why did she do it? Well, she had two advantages that other people didn't have. One advantage was because she was a prostitute, she was desperate. You know, the middle class, the wealthy people of Jericho had no need for God. They felt secure behind their city walls. But Rahab was desperate. Her life was miserable and lonely and dehumanizing. And she was looking for a way out. And her desperation was ironically an advantage. And ironically, the fact she was a prostitute was an advantage too because she had men coming to her day day and night from outside the city walls telling her about this strange God and these strange people coming from the east. This God who seemed somehow to be more invested in his people than the pagan gods were, this God who seemed to have more power than the pagans God had, and this God who seemed to do miraculous things on a fairly regular basis. And, and Rahab, you can imagine her lying in bed at night after all her customers were gone, wondering, thinking, could this be something that could mean something, a life change for me? She makes the choice. Now, I want to go back to Joshua 2, and I want to read something we didn't read earlier. It will explain why Rahab made the choice she made. She says to the spies, she goes up on the roof of her house, and she tells them why she made the choice she made. And this is really critical to understand her motivation, to understand what it has to do with us. So let's look at that. This is back to Joshua 2. This started in, in verse 9. It says this. She's speaking to the spies. I know the Lord has given you this land and that a great fear of you has fallen on us so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came up out of Egypt and what you did to Sion and Og, the two kings of the Amorites, east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. 
When we heard of it, our hearts melted in fear and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on the earth below. Look at that last line. The Lord your God is God in heaven above and on earth below. This is a woman who knows almost nothing about God. This is a woman who doesn't know about Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. She doesn't know about the the Jewish patriarchs at all. But somehow, she is in awe of God. Somehow, what she knows about him causes her to make a decision that will totally change her life. Her theology is not in line. She doesn't have a clearly defined doctrine of who God is, but his presence and his power is enough to make her make a key decision. The words of Proverbs 9 and 10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, seem to explain Rahab's choice. The sense of awe she feels in the sense of God and the news of God puts her on the path to wisdom and to a a critical change in her life. She's afraid of God in the traditional sense, but she's afraid of God in the sense of respect and awe and reverence. And again, that makes all the difference. Contrast her response with that of the Israelite spies. They know a lot more about God than she does. They've seen him tangibly, continually, but they don't trust. If ever somebody should have lived in a continual state of awe, they, it should have been them. But instead, they live under the curse of awelessness. They take God for granted. They don't care. Which is really remarkable given what he's done. And so Rahab becomes a hero. Cited three times in the New Testament. And these men are regarded as an embarrassment. It's hard in the face of all that they've seen and how little Rahab had seen not to think of the words of Jesus. In John 20, 29, he's, he's come back from the dead. He's been, this is following the resurrection. He appears to his disciples, and Thomas isn't there. When Thomas rejoins his friends, they tell him that Jesus has been raised, and, and his response is, there's no way. That couldn't have happened. Well, that's a very, and, and frankly, what else would you say? I mean, people don't come back from the dead. A week later, and, and, and Thomas says, I will not believe unless I can see it with my own eyes. I can put my hands in his wounds, touch, touch his wounds with my own hands. A week goes by. Jesus reappears to the disciples. This time, Thomas is there. Jesus says to Thomas, come, come, touch my wounds. And he does. And when Thomas does, he falls on his knees and he says, my Lord and my God, he reacts in awe. Totally different response this time. And Jesus' words are critical, again, in understanding Rahab. He says to Thomas, because you've seen me, you've believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. The Israelite spies saw, but they didn't believe. Rahab did not see, yet she believed. You know, Jesus says, let he who has eyes to see, see. But the problem for a lot of us is we don't see. We walk in a world that is filled with God's wonder, and we just don't see it. Now, forgive me for saying this, but I always, I always get, okay, when I talk about secret complaining, this is what I'm going to confess one of them now. I get frustrated when people come back from a place like Niagara Falls or the Grand Canyon or Yellowstone Park or someplace like that, and they say, I, was just, I, I saw the grandeur of God in that place. And I think, well, good for you. Anybody can see it there. Atheists can see it there. <laughs> But the reality is we're surrounded by the grandeur of God. Every single day we're surrounded by the grandeur of God. 
I know that we don't give homework in church, but I was a teacher for a lot of years, so I'm going to give you a homework assignment for today, and you have to do it or you get an F in heaven. (laughs) So here's your, and I, I really, I really want you to do this. I'm not kidding. I want you to do this. I want you today, this afternoon, walk out your front door and walk three blocks. And I want you to try, to try to identify all the different kinds of plants that you see in your neighborhood. Now, you're not a botanist. You can't name them. But just look at them. I went in our backyard knowing that I was going to give this sermon. I went in our backyard and just kind of did a circumference tour of our house this week. And, I, and, and without being able to name many of them, I started to count the different kinds of plants I saw in our yard alone. And I got up to 50 and I stopped. And I, haven't even, I didn't even begin to touch the actual number. I know if you take a three-block walk today and count the different, the different kinds of plants you see, you'll get to 200 easily, easily. Shrubs, vines, weeds, flowers, trees, grass, all kinds of things. Now think about that. Every one of them is uniquely created. Every one of them has a unique structure. Every one of them, some of them are flowering, some of them are not. Some some of the trees lose their leaves in the winter. Some do not. Different shades of green, different root structures. Every one of those was uniquely created by God. And God is saying to us in creating everything, look, look. Look at this grandeur all around you. See it. But we don't. We don't. We walk right by it. Our eyes are closed to what God has given us. We're like the spies. God says, here I am, take a look, and we just don't see it. I want you to look at a video, which maybe will make the point. Clearly, somebody in this room murdered Lord Smythe, who, at precisely 3.34 this afternoon, was brutally bludgeoned to death with a blunt instrument. I want each of you to tell me your whereabouts at precisely the time that this dastardly deed took place. I was polishing the brass in the master bedroom. I was buttering his lordship's scones below stairs, sir. Why, I was planting my petunias in the potting shed. Constable, arrest Lady Smythe. But but how did you know? Madam, as any horticulturist will tell you, one does not plant petunias until May is out. Take her away. It's just a matter of observation. The real question is, how observant were you? And action. Clearly, somebody in this room murdered Lord Smythe, who, at precisely 3.34 this afternoon, was brutally bludgeoned to death with a blunt instrument. I want each of you to tell me your whereabouts at precisely the time that this dastardly deed took place. I was polishing the brass in the master bedroom. I was buttering his lordship's scones below stairs, sir. I was planting my petunias in the potting shed. Constable, arrest Lady Smythe. You didn't see it, did you? I mean, I didn't either. It's not like I'm Sherlock Holmes and I saw all that. It's right in front of our eyes. We don't see it. And that's the problem, I think. We walk through, we walk through this world and God says, here I am. Look. And we don't see it. 
I love the line from John Calvin. He said, there's not one little blade of grass, there's no color in this world that is not intended to make men rejoice. David said, oh, magnify the Lord within me in the Psalms. He was not saying, make God bigger. God is already plenty big. What he's saying is enable me to see God as he really is. Isaiah saw God as he really was or really is. In chapter six of his book of prophecy, he said this, he had this vision of God. This is what he said. I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, with two they were flying, and they were calling to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. That's God as he really is. That's God revealed. And we may not be privileged to have a vision like Isaiah had, but nonetheless, God gives us evidence. God is plenty big if we simply look. And yet we don't. Okay, it's time for a shameless grandfather plug. (laughs) I have two grandchildren. I have a five-month-old grandson, and I have a three-year-old granddaughter. My grandson is in that line a booster chair and not do much phase of life. He's beginning to develop a personality, but my, gra- my granddaughter has a full-blown personality that is unbelievably charming. <laughs> this is a picture of her. <laughs> her name is Audrey. Now, the thing about Audrey that is so delightful and the thing that I just, I so enjoy being in her presence is that Audrey is in awe of everything. Audrey loves everything. One of her favorite things to say, she says this probably three times a week, this is the best day ever. (laughs) Now, how great is that? What an attitude for her life is, and wouldn't you like to keep that alive for, for her entire life? But the thing about Audrey that I really enjoy is that when it rains, like yesterday when it rains, Audrey loves to go outside and jump in the puddles. Puddles to her are a source of delight. To me, they're an irritation to be avoided, but to her, they're something something to enjoy. When the worms are on the sidewalk after a rain like yesterday, she likes to get down and look at the look at the worms and really and and just just observe them and ask questions about them. I ignore worms, but to Audrey, they're a source of curiosity. A few weeks ago, we went for a walk. And um, we came to our neighbor's yard, and they have a lot of dandelions. Now, dandelions to me are a nuisance. But to Audrey, they were, oh, look at these. And we sat down on the grass for 15 minutes and plucked dandelions. And I hadn't really, really closely looked at a dandelion for more than 50 years. But, but with Audrey, I was really looking, and they are beautiful. They really are beautiful. They're intricately structured. And then, of course, we pulled the, the, you know, the cotton ball parts, the seed things, and we started blowing them all over, which caused great delight for her and great, great, uh, great aggravation on the part of the neighbors who had to deal with the, all the dandelions we spread throughout the neighborhood. But that's Audrey. This is Audrey having tasted strawberry icing for the first time. That's her expression, okay? No wonder Jesus says we have to become like children to enter the kingdom of God. We have to live with a sense of awe. We have to live with a sense of wonder. Everything to Audrey is a sense of awe, a sense of wonder, but not to us. We're more like the Israelite spies. Rahab and Audrey got it. Somehow we didn't. And so the fundamental question for us then is, how do we go through life and live with a sense of awe? How do we do that? Well, one way is to open our eyes. One way is simply not to take the world that God has given us for granted. But it's hard to do that for a lot of us because our lives are very difficult. 
There's a lot of pain in this world. Circumstances of life descend upon us, and it might be illness, and it might be, it might be job loss, it might be a broken relationship, it might be a, a dream we had that has been smashed. I mean, there's just a lot of pain in this world and in this room. And for me to sit here and say, just open your eyes and see the glory of God, you say, well, okay, right, I get that. But that doesn't really address the fundamental pain that is in my life. And I get that too. So let me, let me offer five questions very quickly that will perhaps begin to give us a perspective. Five questions which I think are almost implicit. We don't necessarily even, even are aware that we're asking these questions, but I think we're in the midst of a painful situation We're asking these questions, again, whether consciously or not, because how we answer these questions really does get to the core of whether we're able to live with a sense of awe or whether we live under the curse of awelessness. So here are the five questions. The first one is is fundamental. Is God good? You know, again, it's very easy in the face of any of those difficulties I just listed to, to wonder, is God really good? Oh, he says he is. The Bible tells me he is, but I, don't, I certainly don't feel that way. It's very easy to let circumstances define our life and, and lose sight of the bigger picture that there is an eternal sovereign God who's demonstrated his goodness to us again and again and again. And can we point to times in our life where unmistakably God was good to us? Can we point to times in our life where God was there for us and he demonstrated his love for us? Can we remember those times? Rahab made a choice. She made a choice to believe that God was good. She knew very little about him, and she made that choice, and that choice made all the difference. Second question is this, will God do what he promises? Will will he really love us no matter what? Will he really forgive our sins, even though some of the things we've done are so shameful and awful that we don't even want to admit we've done them? Will he really walk us through the valley of the shadow of death? Does he really open the doors of his kingdom to us, even though we're often disobedient or indifferent to him? Will he really do those things? Will God really do what he promises? Rahab believed that he would, and that made all the difference. Is God in control? You know, the doctor walks in and says, I'm sorry, this diagnosis is very serious. Or when your boss calls you into his office and says, I'm sorry, I've got to let you go. Or when your spouse says, you know what, I don't think this is going to work. It doesn't feel like God's in control at those moments, does it? And you look at the world, just the way the world is today with ISIS and with Orlando, with the economy and turmoil, given what just happened in, in the United Kingdom. And there's so many things that, that cause this anxiety. Is God really in control? This election is a crazy election, craziest of, of any of our lives. What's happening? Where is God in all this? Rahab asked the same question. She said, I'm going to trust him. Does God have the necessary power? Can God really intervene to save my marriage? Can God really intervene to heal this relationship? Can God really help me find a job? Can God really heal this disease? Can God really do these things? Rahab believed he could, and that made all the difference. And the final question is, does God care about me? Oh, sure, I I, I get that God cares about people in the abstract. I get that God can heal cancer or can do these things. But what about me? What about my situation? Is he there for me in the midst of my pain? Well, again, Rahab trusted God, and she did believe that God would intervene in her behalf. And her her whole life changed because of that. But I think rather than pointing to Rahab, the better place to point is to Jesus. 
If we doubt that God cares about us, if, he, if I doubt that he cares about me, I think what I've got to do is remember that he undeniably proved the fact that he loved me and that he loved us the day he went to the cross. The holy God of heaven sent his son to die on the cross to pay for my sins so that I could stand before God as his son, forgiven and made whole, not because of who I am, not because of my virtue, but because of the enormous love that God had for me. And that makes all the difference. That's the ultimate proof that God cares about me. So here's the central issue for today. How do we deal with these questions? How do we deal with the fact that life is painful, circumstances are difficult, but can I see God as he really is in the midst of all that? Can I live with a sense of reverence? Can I live with a sense of awe? Can I live with a sense of trust? Can I really do that? I can live with awlessness because you know what? Life is going to get all of us at some point. Bad things are going to happen. What do we do at those moments? Or in those moments, could I say, God, I don't like it. I don't get it. I want you to take this away, but I'm going to trust you anyway. I want to close by reading a poem written by a French monk, Francois Fenelon, who wrote it, who lived more than 300 years ago. He died in 1715. So this poem was obvious, or poem, prayer was written before that. This prayer is a prayer that, that, is, that is an expression of a man who I think sees God as he really is. A man who lives with a sense of awe in the face of Almighty God. Now, usually when we, when we close a sermon in prayer, we ask people to bow their heads. I'm not going to ask you to do that today. The words of the prayer are going to be on the screen. As I read them, I just want you to see them. Because I, I, for me, if I hear things and read them too, they somehow sink in more deeply. So I'm going to ask you to get, just continue to look at the screen while I read this prayer. This is, a, this is the closing prayer, although it, it's not the way we normally do it. Because I think that, that Fenelon really gets a sense of awe in terms of who God is and why it makes a difference and how to live our lives in, in, in his presence. So let's close in prayer. Oh, Lord, I know not what I should ask of you. You alone know what I need. And you love me more than I can love myself. Oh, Lord, give to me what is proper, whatever it may be. I dare not ask either for crosses or comforts. I only present myself before you and open my heart to you. Behold my needs of which I am ignorant and do according to your mercy, smite or heal, depress or raise me up. I am silent. I offer myself in sacrifice. I abandon myself to you. I have no more desire to accomplish your will. Amen. Thanks, Scott. Uh, through the scriptures has asked us the right question is, are, are we in awe of our God? Are we um, coming with uh, an appropriate understanding of his grace and his mercy and what that cost him and what it, uh, what it, it is gains for us? Because there isn't a person in this room uh, from the pastor to the elders to, uh, to the, the, the first time visitor that's walked in that deserves the love and the mercy of God. Every one of us deserves God's condemnation and God's wrath. Uh, if we don't have an intercessor, if we don't have someone that stands in our place, uh, then we are lost. But as Scott wrapped up his sermon, uh, he reminded us that 
God uh, can be trusted. God is gracious. God does care. And he is powerful. And all of that finds its perfect fulfillment in the cross of Jesus Christ. I turned to Matthew 1 as, as Scott was wrapping up his sermon with a bit of a smile on my face because, and Scott mentioned Matthew 1 as a place where Rahab is mentioned in the New Testament. Uh, and it says this in Matthew chapter 1, I'm just a two, couple of verses in the, in, the, in the genealogy of Jesus. And Solomon was the father of Boaz by Rahab. Boaz was the father of Obed by Ruth. Nobed the father of Jesse. And Jesse the father of David the king. And we all know the line of Jesus. So one of the most broken, sinful people in all of scripture, Rahab, who spent her life in prostitution ends up becoming part of the family of Jesus because of the faith in which she put in God, not because of anything she did to save the spies, but because of her faith in God. And that's how we come to this table this morning. We come by faith that we don't deserve God's grace and mercy, but it's given to us freely at the cross of Christ. So that's why we say every time we celebrate the Lord's Supper, this is not Green Tree's table. You are not excluded if you are not a member of Green Tree Community at church. This is the table of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so if you have a church home, that is different, or you have no church home, but your faith is in Jesus for your salvation, then this is his table provided for you. Uh, if you're still wondering, if you're still questioning, if you're seeking or skeptical on some level and you have not put your faith in Christ, uh, please don't feel compelled because you're sitting in a building called a church to do something that would be quote unquote religious. It will be of no value to you. Uh, it would be better for you to, uh, to just think about the, uh, the scripture that you heard this morning through Scott's sermon and consider how much God does love you and how much this is for you if you were to put your faith in him. But for believers of Jesus, this is spiritual nourishment. Uh, this is uh, the love of God expressed to us uh, in represented in the bread of his body broken and in the cup, his blood spilled. And so as his servant, I invite all of you who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ to, to participate uh, in his table today. Will you pray with me? Father, we uh, first confess to you our, our sinfulness. Lord, thank you for the word that Scott brought this morning that reminds us uh, of just how quickly we can complain, how quickly we can lose sight uh, of your majesty and your glory and your beauty. And so we thank you, Lord Jesus, that you've given us this table. You've told us to uh, enjoy this precursor of the kingdom feast that is to come as a visual and physical reminder of how much you love us and what you have done for us in order that we could be called sons and daughters of God. So where we come to the table this morning confessing our sins, we don't come with pride. We don't come with any spiritual arrogance. We don't come thinking we are better than others. Lord, we realize that we deserve your condemnation and that we stand only in your grace. So, Father, we freely confess our sin. We pray actually that even as the elements are being passed out, that you would bring specific sins to mind, that we may confess them specifically to you, and if need be, uh, to one another. Father, we also come rejoicing and thankful for what you have done for us in the Lord Jesus. We set these elements apart from their common use of our physical nourishment and ask that you would be mysteriously, spiritually present in these elements, Lord Jesus, that you would nourish our souls. We pray in your name. Amen.
Paul wrote to the church in Corinth. He said, I'm passing on to you what the Lord Jesus passed on to me the night in which he was betrayed. The Lord took bread and after he gave thanks, he broke it. And he gave it to his disciples and he said, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And after they'd eaten, he took the cup and when he poured it, he passed it to his disciples and he said, this cup represents the new covenant in my blood which is shed for the remission of sins. All of you drink from it because as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And ask the servers if you would begin to come forward, and I'm going to give a couple of words of explanation. Uh, we're going to pass the elements this morning so you can stay seated. Uh, we'll pass both the bread and the cup at the same time, and we would ask that you hold on to them. Uh, and then after everybody has been served, we'll celebrate together. Also uh, want to mention that if you are gluten-free, uh, those elements are on the tray. They're kind of tucked underneath uh, the napkin, but, uh, but they're there on each and every one of these trays. So uh, let me serve the servers and then we will uh, serve you and then we will all partake together. <laughs> 